Those are the best. We'll never uh, do better than those uh, bumpers, I'm telling you. Well, if you would uh, turn in your Bibles to uh, Hosea, it's a little book in the the back part of the Old Testament. There's a big book, Daniel, right before it. There's some little books, Joel and Amos, right after it. Or if you want to uh, join us in our uh, live event on YouVersion, where you'll find the scripture and uh, some outline notes and some other things, uh, you can feel free to do that if you've got your smartphone or uh, other device. As you're finding your way there, uh, I want us to uh, pray together. And we're going to talk about a difficult subject today, and I want to make sure that uh, we've invited God to be part of this. Okay, let's do that. God, uh, I just uh, want to make sure that your uh, spirit is here today. I know that where we gather, your spirit is there, and I'm asking today for your spirit to work in our hearts in a powerful way. God, uh, would you guide my words as I share today? May they be your words and your heart. And uh, Father, could we just uh, be open and honest to hear from you today? Uh, In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So let me ask you a, a fun, uh, large-hearted question. How many of you plan someday to commit adultery, cheat on your spouse, get something on the side? How many of you, when you got married, planned that uh, one day you would have some children and then you would be involved in a bitter, ugly divorce? Yeah, nobody. I don't think anybody plans for either of those things to happen, and yet statistics tell us that nearly 50% will cheat on their spouse. Somewhere just over 50% will end in divorce. Now, why is that? Well, one of the many reasons that are out there is that I think we do a terrible job of preparing people for marriage. In fact, we probably do a better job of preparing people for divorce. Now, think about it. The difference in our culture, in our society, the difference, the only difference between dating and being married is a short ceremony and a piece of paper. In our culture, in our society, people who are dating participate in many of the things that ought to be reserved for marriage. Physical things. Things with our bodies. We spend the the night in the same bed. We share the same sink with our toothbrushes. We live together. We pretend that we're married, and we play house. And then, when things don't go so well, when the rocky moments come, people take their toothbrush and their broken heart, and they move on. The problem is that when we actually get married and things get rough, we resort back to doing what we've so often done before. We take our toothbrushes, and we move on. And it has become a critical thing in our country. Now, we know that that's not the way that it should be, but we allow it to be that way. Maybe you saw on Fox News Online this week the story of uh, Michael Coletti. Uh, Michael is a uh, youngest prosecuting attorney in Norwalk, Connecticut ever. He uh, works for the NFL and uh, is a personality on court TV. But if you Google his name, the first thing that comes up are liars, cheaters are us and a story from his girlfriend about how she perceives him. And I I actually have wanted to go online and read what she had written about him, but the website Liars, Cheaters, or Us was down this week, I think because of the court case. He is suing her for slander and ruining his life. Now, I don't know who's telling the truth, but I do know this, at least that she claims. She claims that uh, they were dating, they were involved with each other, and... She got a phone call one day saying, this isn't going to work out. I'm breaking up with you. And 12 days later, he married another woman. Now listen, that that was not, it is not, 
and it never will be what God intended. God has a plan for something that is much more beautiful. God intended that one woman would be married to one man for a lifetime. So today, as we wrap up this series, I want to look at the story of, as you heard, Hosea and Gomer. Uh, Their story is a story that you would think would end in divorce, but God has something far different in store for them. So let's look at their their story. Hosea uh, chapter 1, we're going to look at uh, verses 2 and 3 here. And here's what happens. And let me give you, before we read, let me give you a background, okay? So this will make sense to you, sorry. So here's a little bit of background. This happens about 760 years before uh, Christ is born. Jeroboam II is ruling as the king of the northern kingdom of Israel. And Israel is experiencing unprecedented time of economic growth. Things are really good economically. And you know what sometimes happens. When things are good financially, things aren't so good spiritually. And as the economic situation of their country grows, they more and more turn their back on God, they worship other gods, they bow down to other idols, and uh, there is a lot of immorality, a lot of brokenness. And it's into that kind of culture, a culture of immorality and brokenness and broken marriages, that God asked his prophet Hosea to speak. And here's what Hosea says. When the Lord began to speak through Hosea, the Lord said to him, Go, take to yourself an adulterous wife and children of unfaithfulness, because the land, or the nation of Israel, is guilty of the vilest adultery in departing from the Lord. So he married Gomer, daughter of Deblom, and she conceived and bore him a son. Now why, why does God encourage this young, budding prophet to go marry a prostitute? Uh, this is, I, I admit, this is a very difficult story to understand and to comprehend. Partly it's difficult to understand because there are many layers to this story. On one layer, you have the very literal, real story of Hosea and Gomer and their marriage and everything that happens afterwards. On another level, this is a story about God's relationship with the nation of Israel and how in their rebellion of sin, they have turned their backs on God and God's repeated attempts at his redeeming love for them. And yet on another level, this is our story. It's our story about our sin, rebellion against God, and God's repeated attempts to call or to woo us back into a relationship with him. It's very complicated. Let me, though, try to take this story and put it in some contemporary terms, maybe that we could understand. So this this young girl named Gomer, which is a funny name, by the way, and growing up when I did, all I can think is, Golly, you know. <clears throat> and it's hard for me to picture her as beautiful, too. You know, I just picture her being related to Gomer. And Anyway, so there is this beautiful young lady, and she has a very sordid past. But she meets this young preacher named Hosea. And he's, uh, he's a good-looking guy, and uh, he's on his way up in his career. And uh, he treats her really well, and he loves her. And he asks her to marry him, and she realizes this is the best offer I've ever had. He really loves me, and that's the only thing he cares about. He's not after me for anything else. And so they're wed, and they jet off to Hawaii for their honeymoon. Let's try to make the story interesting, okay? And uh, while they're in Hawaii, um, they really are enjoying the new thing of being married, and she gets pregnant, and uh, they're so excited. And then there's the wonder, is it a boy, is it a girl? And there's the ultrasound, and there's a stem on the apple, so it's a boy. 
and uh, they're excited, and they're painting the room blue, and they're going to the baby showers, and they're trying to decide on a name, and they think of a couple names, but those happen to be old boyfriends, and so those names won't work. And <laughs> Finally, after exhausting several names, because there are a lot of old boyfriends, they come up with a name, and the baby's born, and things are good, but you know then how life gets sometimes, and she's trying to recover physically from having a baby, and it's tough getting that weight off, and She's feeling a bit neglected, and he's feeling self-conscious, and so he begins to feel neglected, and his job is really getting busy and taking off, and so he's spending a lot of time working, and, and then there's this old boyfriend that she contacts on Facebook, or maybe it was that she goes to the fitness center, and there's that young trainer that really pays some attention to her, and, and suddenly, suddenly something happens, and she, she believes this lie, this misconception that so many people have believed in marriage along the way. She believes that, that what she is missing is better than what she has. I mean, she has this, this great guy, and she sees that he is a great guy, but, but boy, there's some things that she feels like she is missing. And she buys the lie that what, I, what I'm missing is somehow better, better than what I have. And so she makes this choice that's found in chapter 2, verse 5. And here's what it says. Their mother has been unfaithful. It's as if these are Hosea's words. And she has conceived them in disgrace. She said, Gomer said, I will go after my lovers who give me my food and my water and my wool and my linen, my oil and my drink. She says there are these lovers and they're promising all, me all of these things. And I think I'm going to go after that. And she, she makes a choice that unfortunately people have been making for centuries. She trades the 80 for the 20. You know what? In any, any good marriage, your spouse is going to meet about 80% of your needs. No human, listen, no human is capable of meeting 100% of your needs 100% of the time. And so if you, if you, you want to set your spouse up for failure, you believe that they are capable of meeting 100% of your needs 100% of the time. And so what she realizes and makes a wrong choice, she realizes that she has a lot of good things, and this is a good guy. But there's, there's, this, there's 20% that I'm missing. And so she, she trades the, the 80 for the 20. She believes the lie that what I am missing is better, better than what I have. How did it happen? I don't know. You know, again, maybe, maybe she felt neglected. And there was this guy at work, maybe. And, and he paid a lot of attention to her. And he made her feel, feel special, and he, he was complimenting her. And maybe he brought her a gift and told her how special she was. Or maybe he had a greater income, and he, and he promised a lot more things. Or in a man's world, there, there was this woman, and she's attractive, and, and she's always complimenting him, and... and his wife is always tearing him down, but boy, she laughs at his corny jokes, and she seems very physically attractive, more so than his wife, and, and so a choice is made. That what is missing is better than what I have, and the choice is made that takes them on a path, that, that ugly, destructive, guilt-ridden, intensely painful path of adultery. Now, you know what, we, we all know that adultery is wrong, don't we? It, it's interesting in the survey, 1991, even Americans in our culture know that it's wrong. 73% of Americans in 1991 said adultery is wrong. 
By 2006, that number had actually grown to 81% of Americans who said it's wrong. We, we know it's wrong. But even among those who follow Jesus, it is far, far, far too common. Now, why, why is that and what do we do about it? So today, I, I want us to have what I know is an uncomfortable conversation. It's a, it is. I don't enjoy it. But we need to talk honestly about this. Let's be clear about a couple of things. Number one, no one is immune. Is, is, is immune. <laughs> is immune, okay? No one. I mean, you, you can fool yourself and you can tell yourself and you can be one of those people who say, well, that would never happen to me. There's no chance of that. I'm not susceptible to that. But you, you let your guard down when you do that. No one, hear me, no one is immune. Here's the second thing. <clears throat> Seldom, if ever, does an affair happen in a day. Much more likely is that it happens over a series of seemingly insignificant bad choices. Uh, an owner of a, a vineyard in uh, the Na uh, Napa Valley in California was interviewed talking about how they had to protect their crops. And they said, you know, it's easy to protect our crops, our, our vineyards, against the big animals. That's easy. He said, it's the small animals, the ones that sort of sneak in at night and gnaw away at the vines that are so dangerous to our vineyards, they can destroy plants in no time. He said, it's, it's the small animals that are difficult for us to protect our vineyards against. And you know what? It's, it's the small animals that are often difficult for us to protect our lives against. It's the, the small, seemingly insignificant choices that we make that often put us on a path and starts the snowball rolling down the hill. So let me go through just several things, and some of these you're going to say, are you kidding? That seems so overboard. But if you, want to, if you want to put up the defenses and protect your marriage from the small animals, then you'll take these kinds of steps. So let me run through several things here. Uh, first, first thing I would say is avoid spending time alone with people of the opposite sex. You should not be spending large amounts, maybe not even small amounts of time with someone of the opposite sex all alone. I mean, our staff around here, we, we have some very specific rules about that. No one on our staff is allowed to ride alone in a vehicle with somebody of the opposite sex who is not their spouse. There are no exceptions. Nobody on our staff is allowed to be here counseling someone of the opposite sex who's not their spouse alone in this building. We don't allow it. Because we have tried to put up the defenses to make sure. Because those times alone, we have a tendency to sort of let the walls down. And the snowball can start down the hill. Here's the second one. Refuse to reveal or act on feelings of attraction to someone other than your spouse. If, if you have even the slightest inkling that you, you think you're attracted to somebody in your office or somebody that you're around, don't talk about that. Don't go to them and say, well, you know, I think I have some feelings. I'm telling you, it'll be the first step in a dangerous path. Next one. Don't share the details of your marriage, particularly if you're having problems with someone of the opposite sex. Guys, go find a guy. Ladies, find a lady. If you're struggling, if you need some help, you ought to get that help. But don't sit down with you know, somebody at the office over lunch and say, let me just tell you about how terrible my marriage is. It is an open door for Satan. Here's another one. Be very careful about Facebook. Now, I can't remember which state I read this about this week. 
But one particular state did a study of divorces that had been filed in their state, and they found that one out of every five divorces filed in their state in recent months in the past year mentioned as a reason for divorce something about Facebook. They had found an old boyfriend on Facebook. They had started a new relationship on Facebook. And it led to an affair and to divorce. Here's another one. If you wouldn't say it in front of your spouse to to someone of the opposite sex, then don't say it when they're not around. If you're having a conversation with someone of the opposite sex and you think about saying something and you can realize, you know what, if my spouse was standing right here, I wouldn't say this, then don't say it because it probably opens the door. If you're tempted, here's another one, change your environment. If there is somebody at work that is tempting you, then do whatever you can. Change your schedule so that you're not around them as much. Ask to have your office move to a different location. Or if it's necessary, I would tell you, even in this economy, get a different job. It's that serious. Or if it's it's somebody in your neighborhood, do what you can to stay away. Or if you have to, Sell your house. Get to a different neighborhood. A couple more. Be careful how you compliment people of the opposite sex. You know, guys, I'll give it from our perspective. It's one thing to see somebody at work who has a new dress on and say, that's a nice dress. It's a whole different thing to say, boy, you look stunning in that dress. It opens the door. Last thing. Remember the commitment that you made to your spouse. There was a moment, whether it was in front of a minister or a judge, where you stood before him and you looked into their eyes and you made a promise to them and more importantly, you made a promise to God and you said to them, I am going to be yours. I'm going to be faithful to you for the rest of our lives. And the moment you're tempted, the very first moment, you need to remember, I've made a commitment, a promise my spouse. Now listen, some of you are very uncomfortable because we're talking about this. And you're uncomfortable because you know that you have crossed the line or you're thinking about crossing the line. And you are terrified by the thought that your sin might be revealed. Now there are others in this room that think, but you know what, this this, uh, seems so right and so good, I don't care what you're saying. Or, or maybe you're saying, you know what, what I've got with going with this other person is so hot. So is hell. So is hell. Listen to what the Bible says in chapter, Titus chapter 2, verse 11. It says, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. This, we have salvation. It has come to us through Jesus Christ. And then he says this, it teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. We have the power through the Holy Spirit to say no to sexual sin. We have the power. We have the power to overcome through the Holy Spirit. But you can't do it alone. You can't try to do it under your strength. It requires the strength of the Holy Spirit and it may require the power of some other people coming alongside you. And I guarantee you, it requires you coming clean. And I'm pretty confident there may be some people even in this room today 
that before you leave here, you need to come to me or to one of our shepherds and you need to come clean about what's going on in your life. As long as it is hidden in the darkness, it is easy for it to go on. But once it comes out into the light, it's the first step to getting out of that sin. And there are some of you today. You need to come clean before you leave this place. The Bible also says this in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. It says, it is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control his own body in a way that is holy and honorable, not in passionate lust like the heathen who do not know God. For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. Do you see that? When we come into a relationship with Jesus, there is an expectation that we will be striving to live a life that is pure and holy. Not that we'll have instant perfection, but a life that ought to be moving every day towards being holy and pure. And then notice how he ends this. He says, Therefore, who, he who rejects this instruction does not reject man. You're, you're not rejecting me. If you want to blow off what I'm saying today, you're not rejecting me. But God, who gives you his Holy Spirit, that's who you're rejecting. Now again, some of you will say, well, yeah, it just it's, you know, I'm, I'm not willing to give it up. You're not rejecting me. You're rejecting God. Well, the rest of this story uh, of Hosea and Gomer is a story that, it, that is about the path out of adultery. And it really becomes a very beautiful story uh, as, as they move out of this. But there's also a realization in these next few verses that God is very angry. And probably his anger is also a reflection of the anger that Hosea feels. You see, the nation of Israel has, they have turned their backs on God. That they have rejected God. And God's angry about that. And rightly so. But even in the midst of this anger that he feels because of their betrayal, he shares some real words of hope. Look at what he shares in chapter 2, verse 14. It says, therefore, I am now going to allure her. I will lead her into the desert and speak tenderly to her. Then I will give her back her vineyards, and I will make the valley of Achor a door of hope. Now, I want you to circle the word Achor, and I want you to know what that word means. That word means trouble. So here's what God says. He says, I'm going to lead you out of a valley of trouble to a door of hope. You know what? All of us have sinned. We, we've all messed up our lives. We have, because of our sin, broken our relationship with God. But God, through Jesus Christ's death on the cross, has given us a door of hope. And through that door, we can find forgiveness and a restored relationship with God. There is a door of hope at the end of our valley of trouble. You know what? Some of the best marriages I know have been through a valley of betrayal. They have been through the valley of an affair. They've been through the valley of pornography. They have been through the valley of rejection and despair. And they have discovered a door of hope. 
because, because they stayed together and they let God lead them and he led them through the valley of trouble to a door of hope. You know what, there, there are some people in this room maybe today that right now you're in, you're in the valley of an affair. But I want you to know, God has the power to restore and to make your marriage healthy and whole once again. He can do that. Because he's all about leading people out of a valley of trouble through a door of hope. So I would say to you this morning, if you're living right now in the valley of an affair, you need to admit that to your spouse today. You need to come clean. And when you do so, you need to tell them without making excuses or trying to explain away what you've done or trying to diminish how serious it is. You need to be willing to do whatever they ask you to do to restore the relationship. You need to answer their questions. You need to cut off all ties with the other person. And you need to let God bring healing to your relationship. Now let me say something. If your spouse were to come to you today and tell you they've been having an affair, I know, I know the Bible says that that's one of the reasons that you could seek a divorce. And that's true, it is. But I also believe that if they are truly repentant, truly repentant, that it is possible for God to restore your relationship. I promise you, over the coming days, you are going to be angry. You are going to feel violated and betrayed. You're going to want to strike out in revenge. But God has the power to walk you through that valley and to lead you to a door of hope and to restore your relationship. It is possible for God to do that. See, the bottom line of this story is that, that God loves us. No matter how badly we have messed up, no matter how far we have gone in a direction opposite of God, God is still, still loves us and still desires to lead us out of the valley of trouble and into a door of hope, a door of forgiveness and grace. That's what he wants to do. Brendan Manning tells of an Irish priest who was walking through the countryside one day and he came upon this young peasant man who was bent over, looked like he was sleeping. But as he got closer, he realized, oh, this young man is praying. So he, he just touched the man on the shoulder and he said to this young peasant, you, you, must be, you must be very close to God. And this young peasant man looked back up at, Brenda, at the priest and said, I am very close and he is very fond of me too. I want you to know this morning, God is very fond of you. No matter how much you have messed up to this point in life, there is still an opportunity for grace and forgiveness because God is very fond of you. So as we come to the end of this series, which has been an interesting journey, hasn't it? I want to remind you of this. That Satan doesn't just steal your family in a day. Now, he, he does something that is far more destructive. You see, he, he paints a coat of familiar drabness over it. And then he, he helps us to, to exchange the evening gowns for a bathrobe, for a night on the town, for an evening in the recliner, for romance to routine. 
And then he takes the, the dust of yesteryear and he sprinkles it on those marriage pictures in the hallway until they become just a, a, distant, a distant memory. And when you look at them, you think that's just that's another couple in another lifetime. Don't let that happen to your marriage. Friends, it is worth fighting for. Ladies, he is worth fighting for. Guys, she is worth fighting for.